Daedalus carefully turned the gear on his new invention as his nephew, Perdix, burst through the door. Uncle! Uncle! Come see what I made! Daedalus sighed. Perdix was only twelve years old, and yet he cast a large shadow. Daedalus had once been the greatest celebrity in Athens. He was seen more as a magician than an inventor. But when his sister asked that he take on her son as an apprentice, he had no idea what he had gotten himself into. The boy was an artist. Already he had invented a small, interconnected set of metal spikes he called a compass. Every architect and mathematician in Greece was after the little gadget. Prideful, Daedalus drew in a breath and waited to be upstaged yet again. This time, Perdix had made a metal replica of a fish's spine with a handle on each end. With Daedalus's help, the boy demonstrated how this saw chewed its way through a log. This would change everything from keeping warm in the winter to cooking to building. The boy would be a legend. People once thought that Daedalus was blessed by Athena, that he was the son of Hephaestus. They thought he was so brilliant that he must be a demigod. Truthfully, he was simply a man with a powerful work ethic and an incredible mind. He had been adored by all and was now surprised but now surpassed by this boy. The only comfort was that the boy's work sold well and kept Daedalus's lab well funded. He patted Perdix on the head and told him how proud he was, though his insides writhed with simmering irritation. Perdix cast a glance at his uncle and didn't miss the look of envy that ghosted over Daedalus's face. He had been longing to tell his uncle something for several days, but based on the angry look on his face, now was not the time. Maybe tomorrow. The next day, Perdix met Daedalus at the top of the Temple of Athena. They stood in silence, watching the sun rise before Perdix turned to his uncle and broke his heart. He was leaving. He had surpassed Daedalus in every way. He needed to move on and expand his knowledge. Daedalus was angry. The ingratitude! He had taken this fatherless boy under his wing and taught him everything he knew. He had been both a father and a master to Perdix, only for the boy to steal his fame and fortune and move on like it was nothing? Were all children such arrogant, selfish brats? If that was the case, he never wanted one of his own. He told Perdix he was not going anywhere. To his surprise, the boy only laughed. The people of Athens may like Daedalus and his showy toys and noisy fireworks, but they needed Perdix. His work improved their daily lives rather than providing petty entertainment. He sneered at Daedalus. No one needed his old uncle. He was an outdated invention. Soon, no one would remember him as Perdix's star would begin to rise. Daedalus felt his jealousy burst through a dam inside of him, and he snapped at the boy. Everything that rises must fall, he growled as he gave Perdix a rough shove. Perdix smirked at the thought that he was getting under the older man's skin, but his foot slid on the marble rooftops, and his eyes widened. The boy toppled off the temple of Athena. With a chirping cry, Perdix was turned into a partridge by the goddess herself, he flew off to his mother, who would die of heartbreak in response to her son's lost humanity. The image of a partridge seared into the skin on Daedalus's shoulder, a sign to all of what he had done. It didn't take the citizens of Athens long to realize what the adventure had done to their hero. 
In the dark of night, he fled the city before he could be executed for murdering a child. Daedalus spent years on the road in exile until Athens went to war with the kingdom of Crete. King Minos was happy to welcome to Crete the man who had been so reviled by Athens. King Minos was a strange character of many moons. He was so quick to execute prisoners that the execution had become boring to him. Yet despite this brutality, he bragged that he would, could pray for anything he wanted from the gods and it would be given to him. This arrogance extended to a prayer to Poseidon. Minos didn't know that this prayer would be his undoing. Minos prayed for a beautiful bull that he could sacrifice to the sea god. When the snowy, white, flawless bull bubbled to the water's surface, everyone grew silent. It was the most beautiful animal anyone had ever seen. He was truly the symbol of the most elite wealth and power. Daedalus saw Minos's eyes flash with greed as he led the beast away from the altar he was meant to be sacrificed upon. The moment it was clear that Minos was not going to fulfill his word to the Poseidon, Queen Pasiphae's eyes also began to glint with something else. Daedalus shook his head. The, his last several years had been good in Crete, serving at the king's side, but the years had given him something else to worry about. Shortly after moving to Crete, he had fallen in love with one of the queen's handmaidens. She was beautiful, clever, witty, and wonderful. She had the perfect blend of sweetness and spiciness, and their time together was the happiest time of Daedalus's life. Then, the boy stole it from him. Icarus' life cost that of his mother. The child was meant to be Daedalus's greatest creation, but instead, he robbed him of his only joy in life. When Perdix fell off from the temple of Athena, he had vowed to have no children, and it was a vow he should have kept. If Perdix was clever enough to surpass him, then surely his own son would spark his wrath and jealousy in even greater extremity. Daedalus knew, as he held the boy who gave him no joy, that Icarus must be kept from everything Daedalus did for a living. He must never become competition. He must distance himself from his son. The boy was a young man now, a great athlete whose interests were safely distant from those of Daedalus. Father barely knew son, and vice versa. It was better that way, and working for royalty would keep those boundaries safely up. That very night, the queen came to him with a special request. Icarus trained for months. The race had been announced the day the king had received the white bull from Poseidon. He had been watching every bite he ate and running every chance he got since. A few weeks ago, he found out that he had passed the qualifying race, and today was finally the big day. He had worked so hard for this moment. Today, for the first time in his whole life, he would make his father proud. If he did really well, maybe he would even get Daedalus to smile at him. He had never felt close to his father, but the lack of affection from Daedalus had only driven him to try harder, while this had only been a source of pain and disappointment for Icarus. He knew Daedalus was just as disappointed with Icarus. He wasn't sure why, but why else would his dad treat him that way? He had been trying to encourage Daedalus to come to the race, but he hadn't gotten so much as eye contact from his father. He sighed as he scanned the stadium seats. The whole city had turned out to watch the race, except for Daedalus. 
Even King Minos and Queen Pasiphae were there. The queen did not look well. She was pale, with bright red cheeks. She was expecting a child, and as she was a close friend of his father and himself, he was a little concerned. Icarus shook his head and leaned forward into the starting position. He waited for the signal and burst forward. Minutes felt like hours as he strained every muscle in his body as sweat glided down his stinging legs, but he could not help his massive grin through the pain. He dashed across the finish line and the crowd cheered. People rushed from the stands to embrace Icarus, shake his hand and clap him on the back. Everyone seemed so happy. King Minos himself told Icarus how proud he was and how he knew the boy had worked so long and hard to achieve this victory. Yet his father was not there, nor was Queen Pasiphae. When Icarus got home, he tossed his medal on the table, disappointed. Daedalus wasn't even home. He flopped on his bed and sighed, but as his gaze hit the floor, he noticed the blood. A few glimmering drops, several feet apart, Icarus slowly rose, frowning, and followed the sparse red trail. The blood drops were few and far between, but still left a consistent path all the way to the woods. Icarus nearly gave up until a large partridge landed on a nearby branch and twittered at him. It whisked through the air and landed next to a few visible blood drops on the dried leaves. The bird met his eye, then swept off into the woods. Icarus followed the bird eagerly until he began to hear screaming. The partridge hovered in front of him unnaturally and held his gaze for a moment before it flew off out of sight. He wasn't sure if his hands were shaking from his previous exertions or his fear. He found a secluded clearing where his father was kneeling at the queen's feet as she lay in the grass, delivering her baby. Pasiphae was like an aunt to Icarus, and hearing her agonized scream filled him with a confusing blend of protectiveness and horror. Was there always this much blood when a new child entered the world? Was this how his mother died? In pain and terror? It wasn't until Icarus knew, it wasn't long before Icarus knew that this birth was not like his own. Instead of a skinny baby or a fleshy chubby baby, the infant's skin clung taut to unnatural knots of muscle until the child's chest he looked like an adult bodybuilder. From the chest up, things only grew more horrible and unnatural. Pearly white fur covered the baby from the chest up, though it was smeared and saturated with blood. His arms and head were that of a young bull. Daedalus wiped the queen's blood from the snowy fur as Pasiphae tried to clean herself up and recover. What strange, dark secret did these two share? Why did the sight of his father cradling the monster throw him into a jealous rage? He didn't even have the time to examine his feelings as the partridge swooped down and squawked in Daedalus's face. The queen and the inventor turned and looked at the youth with wide eyes. Icarus stared right back and fled. Daedalus swore. Even if he chased his son, he wouldn't catch him, and the queen was in no state to be abandoned. They had been hoping to leave the child in the woods if it looked abnormal and convinced the king that there had been a miscarriage. The gods did not consider leaving a baby vulnerable to nature the same as actually murdering a child, so people did it all the time. 
Since Minos was the one who had provoked Poseidon to curse Pasiphae, he was not in any place to be their judge, but as the queen and the inventor were surrounded by guards, it became clear that Minos would judge them anyway. The baby roared with rage as it was torn from its mother. It was renamed the Minotaur, since Daedalus had helped his wife create this abomination, he would design its prison. Queen Pasiphae was chained around the ankles to be kept within Minos' control at all times, and for Icarus, who now had a place among the king's guard, it was terrible to watch her punishment. When he had told the king what was happening, he had come to him as a friend, not as a traitor. He was rewarded with the position within the palace, but it just meant a closer view of his father's hard work and the queen's imprisonment. Icarus wasn't sure whether he was promoted as a reward or as a way to keep him under Minos's gaze, just like Pasiphae. Icarus and Daedalus didn't speak again until Daedalus completed the labyrinth. It was a great bejeweled dome covered with mosaics of Minos's completing great feats of courage or strength. In the center of the dome, a great tall tower rose out of the curve like a spike. Minos then took to feeding the Minotaur meat making it fight and forcing the guards to abuse the beast until it grew bloodthirsty. While this conditioning went on, he also ceased his typical boring executions and instead trapped criminals in the labyrinth. Once the Minotaur had grown bloodthirsty enough for the king's taste, he commanded Daedalus to take the monster and chain him in the center, where he would feast upon the prisoners of the labyrinth. When Icarus asked why his father had to be the one to trap the bull man, Minos replied that Daedalus was the only person who knew his way through the elaborate halls of the dome. The king and his guards waited outside the dome for Daedalus to emerge. Minos frowned. If the inventor knew his way out, then he could pass that information to others. Prisoners could escape, or people could become aware of the shameful creature within. Unacceptable. At spear point, Minos and his guards trapped Daedalus within his own prison. Icarus fumed. He wasn't very close to his father. He wasn't even sure he liked him. But this seemed like a poor way to repay a man who had done so much for him. Daedalus had helped the queen through the disgusting curse of Poseidon. He had helped her survive the traumatic birth of a monster. He had built a bejeweled prison for the creature, all without a hint of betrayal, and now he was to be executed for knowing too much? Icarus wouldn't stand for it. He packed food and as many candles as he could to carry light or as many candles as he could to carry to light his way through the dark labyrinth and then he swept off into the night. A pair of armed guards flanked the entrance to the dome, but if Icarus knew one thing about his father, it was that nothing was ever that easy. Daedalus could never pass up an opportunity to prove how much smarter he was than everyone else. There would be other tricks to this dome, and Icarus would find it. He carefully scanned the glittering dome, avoiding the side where the guards would see his candle. His eyes grazed over the image of King Minos watching the foot race and himself winning. There was an indentation in the image of himself right between his collarbones where the ribbon held. His medal! He pulled it out from his tunic and over his head. Carefully, Icarus pressed the prize into the indentation. The metal clicked into place and could not be pulled from the mosaic, 
but it was also not flush with the other jewels and tiles that made up the image. Since he could not pull it out, Icarus tried to push it in until it fit properly. He adjusted his bag of supplies and pushed and pushed and pushed with all his might until the metal clicked into place and a panel flipped forward, tipping him into the dome and latching shut behind him. Without the metal, he no longer held the key. There would be no exiting the way that he entered. He lit a candle, nowhere to go but forward. Icarus had no idea where Daedalus would go, trapped in the labyrinth with hours of a head start. Fortunately, unlike his father, he had candlelight. He followed footprints in the dust, hoping they belonged to his father and not a criminal or something worse. Left, right, left, left, right. He couldn't tell if he had been walking for minutes or hours. This was the true torment of the labyrinth, an endless stretching hallway of sameness. No sound, no light, no sense of time passing, nothing but yawning darkness. Eventually, turn after turn, hour after hour, Icarus followed the footprints. He knew they belonged to his father because they never doubled back, hit a wall, or got lost like those of the prisoners. Even in the utter darkness, the Creator knew his creation. Finally, Icarus entered the center of the dome and snuffed out his candle. The walls of the center were lined with stairs that climbed up the spiked tower. The windows of the tower allowed in the first rays of morning light, which fell upon the Minotaur and Daedalus. The man was feeding pigeons and other birds that flew into the tower to the beast. Icarus swallowed his jealousy at the sight of his father treating the monster better than him again. Instead, he approached his father. For the first time in Icarus's memory, Daedalus hugged his son. Together, they launched an escape plan. Using feathers from the birds that flew into the tower, straw and sticks and bedding for the Minotaur, and wax from Icarus's candles, they would construct wings, climb the tower, and glide to safety. It took days, but they had the time. Everyone thought they were dead. They carefully crafted the wings and hauled the awkward objects up the tower. Once up top, they leaned against the open window to rest their legs. They ate the last of Icarus's supplies as they waited for night to fall. Daedalus was quiet, tense, and fidgety. He had tried to make a similar project with Perdix years before, with better materials, and it was a complete failure. He was nervous, but also conflicted. When Icarus was born, Daedalus resented him for the loss of his mother. He had been afraid that his son would be a rival, and his jealousy would overcome him as it had with Perdix. As Icarus grew to be more athletic than intellectual, he was both relieved and bored, assuming the child to be a bit of a dullard. But his last few days of working on the wings had shown Daedalus that Icarus was actually very bright. If Daedalus had only cultivated this intelligence, perhaps Icarus would have been a great mind of the age like himself. Instead of this causing anger and jealousy within him, he felt the warmth of pride swell within his chest like a deep inhale of air. He swore to do better as a father, and even teared up a little as he instructed Icarus to fly away from the water to keep his wings dry, but not to fly too close to the sun or his wings would melt. They strapped the wings onto their backs and waited for the sun to set, took a deep breath, and jumped. Even the forces of Minos' navy could not reach them in the sky. Above him, Daedalus heard Icarus give a whoop of glee and then rolled his eyes. So much for a stealthy getaway. 
Icarus swooped upward and dove towards the sea, laughing in exhilaration. They were moving faster than any human had ever moved before. The wind whipped through his curls, and for the first time in his life, the youth didn't feel like a burden or a caged animal. For once, he didn't have his father or the palace authorities controlling or dismissing him with disapproval. He was free, free and proud of himself for the first time. He was literally able to spread his wings and make his own choices. It was like seeing for the first time after a life in the dark labyrinth. He had spent his short life unhappy, trying to make everyone else satisfied with their own life. He had rotated between his father, Minos, and Pasiphae, giving his all, exhausting himself for their approval, only to fall short every time. No one had ever done that for him. They had all been all too happy to tell him what he wanted or what he liked. He would still try to make his father happy, but he now knew that it was futile to hang his own happiness on the whims of another. He had to choose to be happy on his own. He was distracted from his musings as a rosy glow stretched along the horizon. They had flown all night, and the sun was bursting forth. Icarus smiled at the feeling of warmth on his skin. It was heavenly, and he felt heavenly. As the sun rose, so did the boy, basking in the glowing warmth. The light sparkled in, on the water, and he inhaled the salty smell of the sea, and rose higher and higher. The sun reflected off the clouds with a golden glow. He rose and rose until he was sure he had flown as high as Olympus itself. He had started the flight as a scared boy and was now among the gods. Perhaps he was becoming a god himself. He had barely felt the thought cross his mind when he felt hot dampness at his fingertips and saw a feather drift below him. Daedalus had been shouting at Icarus for half an hour. Either the boy couldn't hear him over the wind or was simply ignoring him. He saw the drops of wax had fallen feathers falling in clumps towards the water, but he couldn't quite locate his son. With the wall of clouds between them, then he saw it. The thin body of a young man silhouetted against the clouds, toppling end over end in a free fall towards the unforgiving sea. Daedalus sped as fast as he could, his body straining as he moved forward towards his son, but felt as though he were moving in slow motion. All wind, smell, and sound seemed to vanish as Daedalus' entire body was only aware of the image of his son, his boy, his legacy, and his potential hurtling towards that water. The sound returned, however, when Icarus hit the water with a sickening, cracking smack. Daedalus slowed and entered the water next to his boy, no longer caring about his wings. They had been so close to land, but they had failed. Daedalus swam, dragging his son's hopelessly broken body upon his soggy wings behind him like a feathered wrath. When he reached the shore of Sicily, he buried his son and destroyed his wings, burning them in a sacrifice to Apollo. He dedicated himself to the life of a hermit, though he knew Minos would never stop hunting him, the only man who knew the secrets of the labyrinth. Lemonade Mermaid here, and uh, this is a story I've been working towards for a little while now. I told you last week that I still think uh, Icarus is a better example of science kind of trampling on the gods and the dangers of trying to push science to its limits and you know uh as ian malcolm says in 
Jurassic Park worrying so much about what you can do that you don't worry about what you should. And I think Icarus, I still think Icarus is a better example of this than Prometheus, just because uh, while Prometheus pushes his idea of passing on intelligence to humanity so far that it angers the gods, Icarus actually not only has that same arrogance to where he angers the gods by presuming himself you know, equal to them, but he also pushes the science to the point where what he wants to do has now become a danger to him. And so I think Icarus is a better example, or at least a more clear example, of what the Victorians saw when they also looked at Prometheus. I think Icarus's arrogance kind of draws some similarities, at least in my mind, to the Tower of Babel in Christianity, where people are working so hard to come to reach the heights of God that God himself has to strike them down. In the Babel story, it's through the introduction of new language, whereas in Icarus's fable, it's more literally falling down. But the idea is the same. Remember, this was uh, a time period where typically um, the king would live at the highest part at the center of any city, which is why we see the gods of Olympus living on a mountain. And so it was symbolic to have the highest place in town be the place of worship, but also the place where the king lived. So height was kind of a very literal depiction of a person's power. And so in both of these um, situations, the the attempt to acquire greater and greater and greater heights is kind of a deliberate slap in the face to either God or the Greek and Roman gods in Icarus's case. And so Icarus kind of is just not learning his lesson from the Tower of Babel here. And it starts out as a childish excitement to experience life on his own terms, to experience freedom, and just that that feeling of rushing, that, that roller coaster feeling that, that we have, you know, when we ride thrill rides. And it kind of develops for Icarus into a feeling of arrogance, a feeling that he is among the gods, and therefore he is struck down. Now, we don't see him physically struck down by one of the gods. In a sense, he's struck down more by his own arrogance. And so that is kind of what chain makes this one very, very different from the actual Tower of Babel, is that in the Tower of Babel, God himself struck, struck humanity with all of these different languages. They could no longer communicate and therefore could no longer continue to build a tower in order to compete with God because you know, they were not learning their lesson. They weren't building the tower to be close to God. They wanted to become God. And so God obviously intervened because not only is it not human's place to be on the same level as God, but frankly, I don't think we could handle it. I think his amount of knowledge and power is just beyond what humans should ever have. And therefore, I think in the case of the Tower of Babel, I think God's decision to... uh kind of separate us as humans and force us to multiply throughout the earth and and spread out you know it kind of gave birth to the great commission there where humans were supposed to spread out as distantly as they could and multiply throughout the earth and that kind of stems from the tower of babel where he could see where people were getting too close together they were actually building things that were harmful both to themselves and to god because again 
people are like children, <laughs> how children always want the parental authority within their family, but really they couldn't handle it if they had it, and they really don't want it, and some of the most unhappy children are the children who have to parent their parents. I think in some ways God may see us that way, in the sense that... Uh, we're always reaching and reaching and reaching to be more like God, to know more, to do more, to be more powerful and be more like God, when really he's looking at us going, kid, you could not handle it if you had it, and you would be so unhappy. So while in the Tower of Babel, God's separating people and keeping us from reaching the level of God, striking us down in that way was an act of mercy. I think in the story of Icarus, I think... Uh, him falling to earth, not literally struck down by Zeus or any of the gods, but really by his own arrogance and ignorance as his wings began to melt. I think um, him being physically struck down and killed was more of a punishment. Now, whether this was more of a punishment to him or to Daedalus is really up for question because on one hand, Icarus really never got a chance to live his own life, but at the same point, Daedalus was the one who kept him from having that chance. So the death of Icarus really is a very painful thing, both for him, obviously, and for Daedalus. And you're not really sure by the end who this was really meant to be a punishment for, when really Minos was the one who had kind of been the villain of the story. But in the end, Daedalus gets even. He does... Um, work for another king who accidentally reveals Daedalus's location and so together he and Daedalus do slay King Minos eventually but um yeah it's it's you see some parallels between the story of Icarus and the Tower of Babel so far as the lessons that they teach however the actual biblical account is uh much more of an act of mercy to keep us from destroying ourselves, whereas Icarus, there was definitely a crime and punishment for your arrogance kind of feel to it. So there's some differences there. If you like this story and you would agree or even disagree with my interpretation of the story of Icarus, and uh, whether you've heard a different version, because of course with all of these mythological tales there are frillions of different versions of all of them and different timelines. I try to keep with the most consistent one I can find. Um, but if you've heard a different version, or even if you just like this story and are excited to hear more of them, please do go ahead and like, subscribe, and follow me on whatever app you listen to podcasts on. And uh, follow me on Facebook. And just spread the word of this storytelling podcast to more of your friends. I try to keep it around the half hour to 20 minute mark for about every podcast. Once in a while I go over that, but I do try to kind of rein it in. I am a talker, so sometimes sometimes it stretches, but for the most part I try to keep it 30-35-ish minutes or less. But um, yeah, so it's easy to do during your workout, during your commute. Spread it to your friends. The more people I have listening, the better the podcast will do. The more likes, subscribes, and listens I get, the higher I am in those search results for, you know, Google and Facebook algorithms and all of that. So by listening and following, you're making it easier for someone else in the future to be able to find this podcast. And I really do appreciate that. So please spread the word, share me on Facebook, um, check out my website. I'm always, always excited to 
check out my numbers and see that I have another new subscriber. We are up to 610 listeners, so I do really appreciate you following. It really is making a huge difference. Thank you so much for tuning in, and you have a wonderful weekend. Hey, everyone. Um, Just kind of a short note here. I am not posting a regular episode this week. It's been kind of a crazy week. My husband had a last-minute business trip brought up so we went out of state for that and then now I have kind of a babysitting job for a neighbor's dog for several days and all in all I just wasn't able to get done the amount of research and scripting that this podcast usually requires and rather than deliver you a less than quality episode I figured I'd go ahead and just uh postpone it till next week it is one that I'm really looking forward to so I wanted to really do it justice so uh, I'm sorry if this is a little bit of a disappointment I hate delaying the podcast I hate to uh, you know not show up and do what I've said I'm gonna do even though you know a lot of circumstances came up but I do want to just you know give you the best show possible and uh, I don't think that that's what this week with the amount of craziness that was going on here in Southern Fried Headquarters. So uh, I will just look forward to giving you an episode next week. And thank you so much for uh, tuning in and for your patience. Have a good weekend.